Please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to another episode of the AFSC series, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 2014 Texas State University grad who went on to become a force support officer. He has held assignments in force management, executive assistant, and also deployed to Afghanistan for mission support. Since getting his master's in operations research, he is now a part of the Office of Labor and Economic Analysis here at the Academy. Ladies and gentlemen, Major Ian McDonald. Welcome, sir. Welcome <laughs> back, you. sir. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's quite the intro. Thank you. Yeah, this is part two from uh, your episode with Olia and uh, Colonel Joffrey on breaking down how cadets are matched to AFSCs. To get things started, do you think you could give an explanation as to like what brought you into the Air Force uh, originally? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm probably an outlier in that I knew for a long time I wanted to be in the military. Uh, so I decided in seventh grade that, you know, th- I remember distinctly walking down this hall, heading to lunch, talking to one of my friends. And uh, she was asking me, like, well, what are you going to do in the future? And I was like, oh, I'm going to be in the Air Force. And at the time, I didn't really know if that looked like enlisted or officer. I really didn't even know the distinction. I just knew Mm. I want to be in the Air Force. Um, And I think a lot of that was brought on by this um, glorification that my dad had of the military. He was an Irish immigrant, and he's just, like, obsessed with the American military, um, thought they were amazing and continued to think they were amazing uh, after I joined and all, uh, and thinks it's way more of a, like, a secretive agency than it really is. So... (laughs) Um, I think that probably influenced it quite a bit, but yeah, I knew in seventh grade and I just pursued that until I got to college and, uh, the semester before I started, I started knocking on doors at ROTC detachments and, uh, made that decision. So that's sweet. So you, you got into college before, or you were accepted to your college. You didn't go into it with a scholarship. Is that correct? And then you applied. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like went to college I got accepted to Texas State and a bunch of other places, and I chose Texas State after I actually went to the Army. So this is a funny story. I went to the Army ROTC detachment. It was like a, it was its own building. The Air Force didn't get their own building. They got like a couple rooms, which is kind of a harsh thing. But um, I, I showed up at the Army spot because that's the only one I could find on Google Maps and like how to get there. And so I knock on the door, and this colonel opens the door, and uh, and I look at his uniform, and I'm like, oh, no, that's an Army guy. I was like, hey, sir, I was looking for the Air Force ROTC, ROTC detachment. And uh, he says, oh, uh, well, that's up there. But wh- why? What are you interested in? I was like, well, you know, I'm considering joining ROTC and I want to have that conversation. He's like, well, first come in and talk to me. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I didn't have anything else on the calendar that day. So I said, OK. And I walk in, sit down and he talks about my background, what I did in high school, what my GPA was and stuff. And he said, all right. You can get up and go to the Air Force ROTC detachment if you want, or I'll give you a four-year scholarship right now that'll pay for your college. You just have to join Army ROTC. And uh, <laughs> that was that was tough. That was tough. Um, and so I, I sat there for uh, about a minute, whatever was uncomfortable enough for both of us, and then uh, said, you know, sir, I'm going to... 
I'm going to go to the Air Force ROTC detachment and, and chat with them. But I'll, I'll come back. You know, If this offer really is good, then I assume it would be good when I get back. He said, I'm a man of my word. It's, it's good right now. It's bad when you leave that door. <laughs> so, okay, sir. And then I walked out that door and went to Air Force ROTC. They did not have a scholarship to offer me when I walked in the door and had a discussion with them. I joined anyway. And then, thankfully, um, I ended up getting picked up for a commander scholarship after my first semester uh, because I, I had done well in the program. So... It all ended up working out in mm. kind of some weird ways, but uh, yeah, I was almost an army guy. So, <laughs> almost. Yeah. Uh, when you were thinking about getting into the Air Force, was there a certain job? Because I mean, I didn't know FSS was a thing up until very recently. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like most people, um, you know, I was looking at what was sexy out there. So uh, I loved the motto from the crows, so others may live. Mm. And so I was like, man, yeah, it'd be awesome to be a crow. I should, I should consider that. And so, you know, that was in the back of my mind. And then logistics was also in my mind. Um, and I was just thinking about things that were not necessarily desk work and that were getting to work with people and do something meaningful. Um, and so, yeah, those those two are in my mind. For support had never even crossed my mind. I didn't even know what that was. Mm. Um, so, yeah, for support would come in. I'd learn about that my end of my sophomore year. Um, and then that would change my perspective on what I wanted to do in the Air Force. First choice? Uh, actually, second choice. First choice was biologist. Um, I was a biology major. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, the career field had four individuals, four officers slotted on active duty as biologists at the time of me putting in my preferences. And they were planning to phase that to two active duty officers and contract the rest by the next year. So number one was biologist. They didn't actually have any spots, so uh, they took that away. So my number two was FSS. So it was, in effect, my number one. There you go. So, Well, that's good. I don't know. I I see – I follow up because of, like, the For the Zoomies Instagram. I end up following all these ROTC detachments. Oh. And seeing their uh, job drops, it's a lot different. And even just, like, mm-hmm. kind of rumors of, like, uh, academy people usually get first, like, uh-huh. pick at everything. So I, I, I just – I'm not really sure of the, the perspective – or uh, like the difference between, you know, job jobs here versus uh, detachments. Yeah. And, and I will just say, just so that we're, if they haven't <laughs> listened to the other podcast, right? It breaks it down. Yeah. Yusafa, ROTC, all done simultaneously. There's no, uh, there's no preference based on source of commission. Um, but the slots for ROTC pilots and Yusafa pilots are distinctly different and do not share at all. So. Just want to put that. Thanks for clearing that up. But also (laughs) plug for the other episode. That's right. (laughs) So to get into for support, FSS, 38, Foxtrot, what is it all about? Yeah, so I I think for those listening, the one thing or the three things I'd want them to walk away from today knowing is um, 38F is all about helping people. So it's like totally service it's how you're going to change someone's life through the hr personnel system um and that i didn't realize how much power i had to do that for folks until i became a captain and started getting positions that really showed me and i was digging into the afis and stuff um so yeah first and foremost it's like if you want to help people this is a career field that will help more people than the majority of any other career field you'll touch um so i love that about it um, it's also like really diverse. So 
38F allows you the ability to do lots of things. You can uh, do the HR lane, right? Like that's like personnel line. That's this administrative functions, getting people assignments, giving them retention. Um, so like keeping them in the Air Force, promoting them, things like that. So that's like the HR line. But we also have an analysis line where now you can go and do data analysis. Um, and there are special billets that send you to locations that use those skill sets. We have special schools to send you to for that as well. Uh, and then there's also like this, what we call sustainment, but it's, you think of it as like hospitality and that's like your lodging, your food, your fitness and managing those processes. Um, and that's like an awesome place for people that really like the, uh, not behind a desk, working with people all the time, creating like basically party planner slash, um, sustainment elements of a base, you know, what keeps the base functioning. Um, so there's like these three main tracks, but they're all super different. And at any point in your career, you have the opportunity to jump into one of those tracks um, and switch back and forth. So I like the diversity in it, the ability to help people. Um, and then also like from day one, you're leading airmen. So mm -hmm. in both of those categories, like my first day on the job, I had 30 airmen and I was a second lieutenant who they knew way more than I did about the air force. Um, and yet, you know, you're expected to lead. So yeah, I, I think that's what 38F is all about, right? It's taking care of people in significant ways, both to them and to the force. Uh, and then getting to have a broad swath of, um, job assignments and things you can do. And then the ability to lead airmen. Mm. So, yeah, I remember when I was on ops going, to, I was at Hickam Air, uh, mm. joint base Hickam. Tough assignment. Yeah, yeah. no, it was, it was tough. Very very cold out there, yeah. um, but we, we followed the FSS people around and it was like, oh, cool. you know, DFAC, mm -hmm. gym, and like, we saw that sort of, but we didn't mm -hmm. see, like, we didn't see like the computers and um, yeah, the that HR. sort of thing. So do people, say you drop FSS, mm -hmm. do you have a choice whether to go like the personnel computer route or the more, you know, hands-on working with people? Um, so yes, but that, what that requires is just a communication to the assignments team, right? Okay. So it's, it's your first assignment. Um, generally, unless you're like working with your um, detachment or squadron staff, you need to have someone advocating for you, like saying, hey, this person has this type of skill set. They would thrive in this particular assignment. And so then you would ask for, you know, uh, assignment in the MPF or so that'd be like more of the personnel side or, hey, they're really strong at data analysis is it possible we could put them underneath a section commander in one of these units that does the analysis and then sustainment element, you know, they're great with people. We should really vector them towards some sustainment element. Um, so you do have a choice, but if you do nothing, the choice will be made for you. Okay. Um, so you got to kind of up channel that communication to the, the, uh, assignments team. Gotcha. So getting into that application, but your career path, um, you started off in force management. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, FM or not to be confused with finance management, but um, yeah, force management's like this little section in the back of the MPF that kind of handles all the records on base. Um, it is not a glorious job to walk into as a new Lieutenant. Um, it's very important, but you don't realize that as a, you know, second Lieutenant who walks in thinking like, I'm going to change the air force. And, and then you're like, Oh, I'm going to sort through, a thousand EPRs. Um, so yeah, there, there were challenges. Uh, I'll be honest with that. Like the, my initial assignments, because I didn't understand the gravity of what I was doing, they were, uh, they weren't as inspiring as I would have liked them to have been. Mm. Um, but 
in retrospect and in that moment, like I learned a lot in those assignments. Um, so particularly in force management, like I'm seeing all these EPRs and OPRs. So I'm like looking at everybody's record from, you know, airmen up to uh, chief master sergeant, and then for the officers all the way up to colonel. So you're seeing these commonalities in each of the forms, um, and you're you're learning how the process works so that you can go and improve the process because the process hasn't been great. Um, and so I took away a couple of things from that, like how to fix this process or IE make it more uh, streamlined for all the units. And then I would go on and do that at each of the bases that I would go to from then on. Uh, but also like what's important about a record. Turns out your record is like 70 to 80% of what will decide if you get promoted um, mm. as you continue along your career. So that was huge um, to realize the importance of a record and how people get looked at on a board. Like when they sit down to, to board review you, which is many processes in the Air Force for enlisted and officer, like your little packet of just these now OPBs stacked together is you. That's all you have. And so that tells a story of quote unquote how good you are uh, and will determine whether or not you get promoted. So yeah, while it was like, not super motivating at the time. What I learned from that paid dividends for the rest of my career. And I ended up having great OPRs out of that because there were people in that space that also knew that knowledge that helped me apply it. So, mm. yeah. First good assignment to kind of not game the system, but like know what's expected. And yeah. but also, like you're saying, uh, like in this job, you're able to help people. I'm sure you knowing that you're like, hey, all the all my airmen, this is what you're looking for to get promoted. Yes. Yeah. The 100%. Like there's, you know, there's no training courses. Some there, there are homegrown training courses, but there's no like air force sanctioned. When you go and write your first EPR, um, OPR, this is what you do. Um, and if you don't have that knowledge, then yeah, like you don't understand that when the board goes up and they, they go line by line through the record, and they're using a scoring system and they're applying a point or a half point or two points. And what they're looking for is like, oh, they've got a wing level award, that's worth two points. Mm. They've got, and so you know that, hey, there are some criteria that we need to push you for uh, to make sure you start getting these quarterly awards or annual awards. Because um, if we get that in your record, we know that's gonna plus up a couple points in your record when you get boarded. Um, and so knowing how to do that for your airmen when it's time for them to promote and helping them helping to strategize, you know, a year in advance to help get them to that next point. Um, when you know their, um, EPB is going to close out that, that makes a huge difference, um, mm. in their lives, their record, in their career trajectory. Um, and if you don't know that, which most people don't, then yeah, you're just like kind of do a good job and it'll work out. And yeah, you know, largely other people will know to reward you and whatnot, um, reward your airmen. But there are definitely ways you can be more successful mm. if you just know the system. Yeah, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here because we might get to it later, but I remember you telling me a story about an airman who hadn't did something to re-enlist. Oh, yeah. And ended up, you know, having to, like, get separated way earlier than they wanted to because... Yeah. I don't know if you're able to share this story. I can edit it out afterwards if... Yeah, no, I, I can share that. Okay. Um, yeah, this was actually... It was an NCO which makes the story a lot more challenging. Um, but yeah, he, he did not 
follow his record, uh, you know, like, okay, I'm closing out. I've got an enlistment, right? Enlisted folks have this four-year, eight-year contract, depending if they've extended or not on their original contract. And so they have a date where they're going to separate. Well, you would think that most people know that date when it's coming. And then the for support folks, um, our airmen are notifying these individuals like, hey, you're a year out. Hey, you're six months out. Mm -hmm. And then every month after that, you know, here's some actions that you should take to let us know you want to stay in or get out. And this gentleman did uh, not respond um, to any of the requests, even through his leadership and whatnot. It just didn't work out for him to get the message. And it turns out he wasn't a very uh, studious, organized person in the first place. So this was not uncommon, uh, not surprising to the folks in his leadership chain. But yeah, he ultimately did not complete the, the paperwork. And he showed up literally the day after he separated. He's like, hey, I can't log in. What's going on? And um, effectively what had happened was his record was what we call drop from roles, uh, which is like mil pds archived his record and then um dropped it from the system so we couldn't go back in and reactivate it so it was unfortunately on him because now he's been separated from the air force but now we had to file this petition which would go on for a month to say hey you know here's the circumstance this guy unfortunately just didn't file the paperwork but he would like to stay in he's got life circumstances that would really help him to stay in uh, what can you do for us? And the final verdict that came back from AFPC was, sorry, man, you didn't manage your record, so uh, you can't come back. Hmm. And so he was separated without without his desires uh, to the civilian sector. So, uh, yeah, definitely good learning points about, like, oh, managing your record actually matters. Hmm. Uh, and, and doing these small, what might seem like annoying administrative steps can have a huge impact on your life. Interesting. I would have never known that. Uh, <laughs> moving on to your next assignment as a flight chief. I'd love to hear what, what is MPF? Yeah. So the MPF is the uh, military personnel flight. That's like on a, a normal base, you have a hub, which is the MPF for the personnel folks. And that's everything possible that could deal with your record. So that's your um, promotions, that's retentions, that's assignments, uh, that's you have these career development sections, force management, you get your ID card there, you uh, bring in your DEER certificate to get your child in there. That's where we process the death certificates, all that stuff. So um, cradle to grave, right? That's what we always say. Everything that has to do with your career happens in the MPF. Um, and that's like, that's a cool opportunity for folks who want to be FSS, who want to lead people, but also have like a really expansive view of the HR system in the Air Force. It literally has every component it used to have civilian personnel too um when i was there it did uh, which is like now a whole nother gamut of managing the civilian talent on base in addition to all of the um, enlisted and officer talent so uh, now we've cpo has their own element but uh yeah the mpf is a great place to go and just learn everything about the hr enterprise and my job really was like yeah i had i had senior ncos and ncos that i managed and this was quite early in my career, really, that's more of like a captain's role. Um, due to some unfortunate elements for the person, the predecessor for me, um, that individual was removed from that position and I was put in instead as like, hey, make this work. Um, so really quite junior for my grade, thrown into this position, and it was kind of like a sink or swim situation. Thankfully, I swam, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was really hard. Um, but I had senior NCOs and NCOs that I was managing 
in addition to, you know, many, many airmen as well. And their job was like, hey, y'all do the routine stuff, but then anything you don't know how to solve or that's in the gray area, bring it to me. And so my daily battle rhythm was just like a laundry list of these challenging problems that didn't have clear answers mm. that I had to like work through and puzzle and try to get exceptions to rules and see who I could get to vie for support for one of these options. Um, so it was a lot of fun because you're just like, there's, it's not like this standardized routine process. It's like, cool, I got to figure this out and solve this and it's going to change that person's life today. Mm. Hopefully for the better, but it might be in a kind of a negative way like that one dude uh, that we already <laughs> talked about. But, but yeah, that's kind of like MPF role. Like you are managing the weird and hard problems for the base and all the personnel elements. Okay. That's, not, that's really interesting. Me and my buddy, um, I don't know, we always talk at night and just like talk about military problems and like try to solve, yeah, try to solve the world's problem basically. <laughs> and um, we were talking about officers one time and we were like, okay, I don't, we don't know because we've never been an officer. We don't know the jobs, what they're actually like, but from what we hear sometimes it is a lot of these like task work Whereas, you know, the enlisted people are specialists that are, you know, if you go to a flight line, you're, you're checking boxes off a checklist. This mm -hmm. is a very structured, organized, not much room for, you know. Deviation. Yeah, deviation, like not like leaving the critical thinking problems up to the officer so that yeah. they can get back to, okay, follow this checklist, get this done, like push this to the next part of the assembly line. Yeah. And uh, I know that sounds like a really cool example of what me and my buddy had envisioned for like uh, what you should be doing as an officer. Yeah. Yeah. That is interesting. Um, so in this position, were you, is this where you were deployed to Afghanistan or uh, how did, th how did that role change? Yeah. So I would get, yeah, I was in that role for a little while. Uh, and then I would get deployed out of that role. Um, so I was there for a year. Yeah, right around a year, a little over a year. Um, and then I would get deployed to Afghanistan. And actually kind of a funny thing, um, that deployment, they were trying to send me to a maintenance unit. So they were going to go make me um, the maintenance group exec. But there was alternatively somebody also deploying to the mission support group at the same time, right? So FSS falls under mission support group. So there's a certain subset of um, career fields that are in that uh, group that you're familiar with that are easier to manage. Like I know a lot more about them. And then there's the maintenance side, which obviously has a specific maintenance set of squadrons that fall underneath it, which I knew a whole lot less about at the time. And uh, knowing the personnel system and knowing how these positions flow, there was a conversation of like, hey, they're putting me, an MSG guy, into an MXG, and they're putting this other guy, when I went and pulled the, the files, this MXG guy into an MSG. That seems kind of strange. Yeah, because you, you can put the square, square peg in the square hole. Yeah, in, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, as opposed to putting the round one in the square yeah. one. Um, yeah, and so that was like hey, uh, there might be some quote-unquote deliberate development happening here where they're like, well, we want to broaden both of you. Um, so I would, did some investigating. Turns out that wasn't the case. They were just like, oh, no, this is just what we, we did. Sorry. <laughs> and so I was able to go through and um, change the names like, through the official processes. Right? I didn't do this in the background. I went through the process to have my name and this other individual's name switched to put us in the appropriate roles, to assign us the right position numbers so that when we showed up, 
we were actually assigned to where it made the most sense, which was MXG and MSG. So being a 38F gave me that knowledge to know like, oh, I have the power to change the situation for my life and for this person's life to make it better. Mm. Otherwise, I would have just been like, well, this is interesting. Off I go. Um, and so, yeah, having the personnel knowledge, knowing how MILPDS works and how people get slotted to systems uh, made a huge difference in the start of my deployment. Um, but yeah, then I would show up MSG and be the exec uh, for the MSG commander. Okay. At that time. So I didn't really know that. I slightly knew. I don't really know what the role is of an FSS officer deployed. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not the MSG exec role. Um, <laughs> that's like, yeah, anybody can, anybody can fill that. Um, you get like your own AFSC for an exec, but uh, a traditional FSS role in a deployment would be anything um, Persco, which is this like personnel accountability. So every person that walks into the AOR or leaves the AOR in any means, alive or dead, you know, Persco is a part of that process. Um, we hope they all leave alive. And uh, that's like that HR function, if you will. So most of the other HR functions really fall away. Um, they, the Persco office will help liaise back to that person's home station MPF to do any of the personnel actions that they really need. Um, or they'll reenlist them out there and things like that, which can be fun. But otherwise, their main job is just accountability and then liaising back to uh, the home station units to help them do the MPF stuff. So Persco gigs are a lot more relaxed than like a home station MPF gig. Um, so that's one flavor that you could be assigned to. Uh, and then there's, and there's some cool elements to that um, of like coding people and getting them forward deployed and things like that. So you, you can feel a lot closer to the mission when you're in Persco at times. Um, and then when you're on the sustainment side, that's like the food and the lodging. We contract a lot of that stuff out now. So um, it can go one of two ways. If you're on a bear base, then you're in charge of. What's literally. a bear base? Uh, so a bear base is like. Uh, tents? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So it's like we fly out with tents, we fly out with some cargo boxes, and we set up a quick defect, and you're going to sleep here. And, you know, it's a, a base that's very rudimentary. It's been there maybe for six months or less. Um, the red horse team from CE came in and they just set up what they could. And now we're building that base up. So if you're in a bear base, which, you know, there are, there have been some bear bases in the last couple of years where we've done this, but you'll go out and you'll be in charge of all of the food, feeding, lodging, sustainment pieces on your own with your airmen. Um, that's a way more intense operation. Um, if you go to the traditional spots like IUD, uh, they have contracted folks who you now manage. So you're managing like these giant teams of contractors and um, from the civilian sector in that country, in the host nation, who's supporting us, which can be kind of interesting and fun to kind of go through those dynamics. But yeah, you do like lodging, um, making sure the defects are operating appropriately, um, feeding everyone, they're getting supplies when they need them, et cetera. Um, and then managing the fitness centers. So those would be like your, your core elements on the sustainment side if you're deployed as an FSS officer. Okay. Um, and then you're also managing the contracts themselves like a contracting officer would. Um, so, yeah, a bit nuanced, but you're really like anything morale-centric uh, is kind of what you're doing. One cool example, uh, in my opinion, it's cool for FSS. There, When we were in Afghanistan, like you have these morale um, centers, if you will, and it's just like buildings that have been turned into 
like a, a tent where we're going to have some fun stuff. If you were in a bear base, it'd be like, there's literally um, a pallet that gets delivered with like cards and basketballs and, <laughs> and like, you know, the old timey kind of idea uh, of fun. But in Afghanistan, we set up a, um, I think it was like a hangar coated in concrete. And we set up a movie theater, a gaming, like a bunch of gaming rooms, pool table, kitchen that we could get like we would order special fried food and stuff like so people would use an air fryer and make wings and whatnot so that they and that was like something we didn't have to do but it was a fun thing to add um sodas whatever and then made that like this cool blacked out but also hardened shelter so that when we were getting rocket shot at us like yeah you can continue to have a good time (laughs) like you gotta lay down and stuff but you don't have to uh you know to immediately evacuate the building so um that's like one of the cool things is like you're in charge of all of the morale and welfare as well um, and keeping troops happy while they're away from home. Hey, real quick. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just a heads up about my biweekly newsletter for the Zoomies Bluff. In three to five minutes, catch up on past and upcoming episodes. Plus, for grads curious about cadet wing changes from a cadet's perspective, I've got you covered. Find the subscription link in the show notes or at forthezoomies.com newsletter. Now let's get back to the show. Mm -hmm. And another point about being deployed is like, uh, like on your paycheck, your like deployment hazard pay or whatever, like less taxation or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on where you go. Yeah. So there's like tax free zones. Um, so like IED is a historic tax free zone, basically certain areas that experience more conflict conflict are tax free. Um, is that just like the U S being nice to the people that are going into harm's way or uh, yeah, so there's policy behind that, uh, of which I am not abreast. Um, <laughs> but there is policy that came into effect to dictate why they should have a, a tax-free zone. But you do make substantially more money. Like, you're saving a couple thousand dollars every month uh, from your paycheck that would otherwise be going to taxes, mm. which is phenomenal. Um, the hazardous duty pay is actually... <laughs> it's funny. Um, so we were... You have to get shot at to get it every month. Uh, <laughs> and you get $250 when that happens. So uh, at the end of a rotation, and this is terrible, but I was in Afghanistan. We were um, at the tail end of the rotation for most folks. I actually ended up getting extended by another two months. But we were outside, and the alarms go off that there's a rocket incoming which basically means like hit the deck. And then we have a C-RAM that goes off, which is like a 50 caliber gun that the army operates that fires to hit the rocket along its trajectory to try to push it off course. Um, it's not really like to blow it up in the sky, though that would be an okay benefit, but it's to, it's to like knock it off its course so that it goes and lands in a different area um, away from a populous portion. And when that alarm went off and the rocket was coming over, for all the folks outside, so like you hit the deck, you, you lay on the ground, or you crawl into a nearby like concrete bunker thing. Um, but there was a big cheer that went out from everybody that was like at the end of the rotation because we were nearing the end of that month and there hadn't been a rocket yet. <laughs> so we all got 250 bucks, you know, because that rocket came in. So it's like silly stuff like that. We're like, that doesn't make any sense, but you know, people people like 250 dollars, I guess. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're yeah. live still, live still, yeah. Yeah, exactly. The rocket didn't hurt anybody, so. <laughs> to switch to a probably less morbid topic, 
your wing exec at Mountain Home. Um, yeah. It's interesting to talk to people that have this sort of career broadening experience of a wing mm-hmm. exec. So do you think you could jump into that for us? Yeah. Um, yeah. The wing exec role was uh, fun and incredibly stressful. Um, but is this a, like you're a colonel, like a wing commander? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So like you're working for, a, so yeah, you're working for the installation commander, uh, whether that's an airbase wing or um, a fighter wing or a support like mission support wing. Um, cause there's different flavors, right? So the type of boss you work for can be different, but that can be general. That can be a Colonel. Uh, in my case, it was a Colonel, um, who's now a one star, uh, great, great individual, really enjoyed working for him. He worked very hard and worked a lot, which means that as an exec, like you're going to do the same plus some, um, his life was obviously more stressful than mine because he was making these big strategic challenging decisions that had you know, real consequences for many, many members of the um, installation and actually across the DAF at that point. Um, but yeah, like you're you're more or less like involved in all of their meetings, which is really cool strategic views. Like I was, we had uh, Codell's visiting, so people from Congress um, and different representatives that would come in and we'd have to showcase certain things to them and continue to have buy-in in that area and try to help, like you're, you're basically meeting the needs of the Air Force while also meeting the political needs of that region while managing, at this time we were managing some um, potential issues with a fighter wing down in another region of the United States. Um, and so we're trying to like help with that. And then we're also running these uh, close air support combat missions in downtown Boise uh, to practice as if we're like in this tight urban environment now trying to drop bombs. And so there's like all of these different elements that you don't know are happening on a base until you work for the wing commander. And then you realize like, wow, the scope of your problems, the amount of things like you're trying to juggle. Mm. And then there's also, you know, all of the support and feeding elements and like the FSS centric functions that they care about. And they're trying to make sure their airmen are getting what they need and are resilient. Um, so yeah, it was super cool to just get like this broad spectrum of, okay, what does it look like to be a wing commander? What are the problems that, this wing faces and then you think about oh wow we have wings all across america and overseas like that problem set only grows uh, and then you think about the people that are in charge of that like mm. the um, acc commander was uh, above us and the numbered air forces and you're like oh my goodness like the amount of things that we have to try to solve at our level and then funnel up like we're still still a lot mm-hmm. right so it was a huge context um eye-opening experience for me uh that i didn't have before so it was great while it was lots and lots of work. Um, and some of that was like purely administrative, like manage the emails, manage the calendars, manage the slides and read aheads, um, distill all those notes, provide a summary of that to your boss. So your boss gets the information that he needs, which when you're doing that as a Lieutenant, you're like, do I have the right lens to do this? And the answer is probably not, but you know, you run it by a couple other folks, your captain and major with you. Cause I was on a team of three. Um, and, you know, they helped me. It was two majors for us. Um, they helped me grow a ton as well, and I still keep in touch with them. Um, so you become a really tight-knit team who work really long hours and work a lot, but you get a huge personal and professional growth benefit from it. Mm-hmm. So does that so, make you want to be a, a wing commander? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would like it. Um, 
It didn't just know? like completely dissuade you from right. it. Yeah. 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 That's like, um, I had a boss, the guy that I worked for when I was deployed, um, he would pull out his hands and he would read from his hands. If those of you who are listening can visualize, he'd look at his hands as if he's reading a sheet of paper and he would read his line. He's like, the Pentagon is a great place to work and everyone should aspire to be there and you will <laughs> love this assignment. And, you know, it's like this tongue in cheek, like these are hard assignments. Uh, most people don't want to do them. <laughs> but one thing he always strove to do was like, I want people to see me having a good time so that they know that when they take this job, like you can still have a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my boss did that well in finding like moments where like, man, this is really fun or like, Hey, look how important this work is. So yeah, he certainly inspired me to have a desire that if one day I was ever offered that opportunity, uh, I would absolutely do it. Yeah. Yeah. A good, a good perspective on like a stressful job. Because yeah. I mean, <laughs> exactly. you're, 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 you're putting yourself up to some big responsibility when, I don't know, that's some, I think that's something a lot of cadets face here. It's like, okay, it's, it's your last semester here as a firstie. Like, you could run for squadron commander, but it's a whole bunch of work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of different uh, kind of aspects to it. It's like, hey, how, what do you, you want to get out of this place? Or, yeah. you know, your, your experience in the Air Force. Yeah, and I'd say there's like a season for everything, right? Like, mm-hmm. what work, what's important for you? And if you have a family at that time or, you know, or your family ambitions, mm-hmm. yeah, make that decision. But mm-hmm. uh, I would say go for the harder thing. You're going to grow more. Mm-hmm. So England section commander. Yep. Yep. So after, <laughs> after mountain home went off to Lake and Heath, uh, which was a neat base, uh, lots of churn there, but, uh, yeah, filled the role as a section commander. And that, that's kind of a nuanced because section commanders are these little MPFs that get embedded in each unit. So I was a 38 F that went in and first went in with the 21 R's, the logistics officers, um, and then all of their airmen, right? So I was embedded in this LRS unit. Wonderful assignment. Loved that. Um, so that like embedded MPF, it sounds like mm-hmm. an HR person getting put into like the de- marketing department of a company, something. Is that like equivalent? Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, okay. it'd be like um, maybe if we think in terms of cadet squadrons, it'd be like instead of having to go to the cadet personnel center area, like you would have a HR professional and a small team embedded in your squadron okay. and so now you could just go to the front desk and talk to them instead of having to walk down to um you know the cadet mpf right mm-hmm. so that's that's probably like more of the equivalent so you're servicing that squadron and all of their personnel needs and you're tracking each individual member so we had like 400 plus individuals in that unit and so you manage every component just like the mpf would like all of the eprs oprs um all of the uh, promotions um, administrative actions that are negative in nature as well, all the things. Um, and you do it for that subset of the population and then you liaise with the base MPF now to like have them do actions that maybe you need additional coordination on. Um, but you basically like as a 38 F what's cool is you get G series orders, um, which basically means like the commander delegates certain powers to you that, carry the weight of legal responsibility Mm. so things you can get in a lot of trouble for if you misuse them but also a um, an ability for you to now go and make decisions Um, and there are certain levels for this that are uh, spelled out in the uh, the afis but like a a captain has more 
G-series powers than a lieutenant, right? So they've thankfully thought ahead and been like, we can't give you everything. Um, but you can uh, administer certain administrative actions on airmen for either rehabilitation or removal from the Air Force, um, you know, things that make a big difference in their life, whether positively or negatively. Um, but you're able to go off and sign those things um, and make those decisions. Uh, most times you'd want to like consult your boss, uh, but there are some commanders who are totally cool. Mine was one of them who was just like, you make the decision and I'll support it. I trust your decision. Mm. And so that was like this weird introduction to kind of like making some commander like decisions, you know, 10 years before I'm going to be a commander. So that was really cool. Um, but then also like you're, you're managing all these personnel elements for these folks. You've got a small team. I team like a five, um, some NCOs and some airmen. Um, but what's really neat about it is because you're embedded in their unit, you like observe how that unit works and what are the cultural traditions of that unit. And I'll tell you, they're all very different. Like being in a 38F unit is very different than being in a 21R or a 21 Alpha unit <laughs> or a 21 uh, Mike. So like these munitions folks and maintenance folks and loggies. Um, and so, yeah, it's like that part's really cool because they just indoctrinate you. They're like, no, you're part of our unit. You help us with all these things and you're like, you are so valuable to them, which is, if you do a good job, they will. Yeah, you kind of got to earn their you. trust, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You come in as an outsider initially, 100%. <laughs> but then once you show like you're competent and that you are you have their best interest at heart, yeah, it makes it, it makes a huge difference. And then they bring you into the fold and um, that happened at every unit. Like it always started off with like this kind of weird cold shoulder thing, which uh, for introverts, I'm sorry, that is, that is a challenge. Uh, 30 death might be challenging in those respects. But yeah. Uh, as you warm up to them and they warm up to you, um, there is definitely this neat exchange that you won't get anywhere else. Mm. Um, so, and you can go literally serve in any unit. So you can go and when telemarketplace is live on the active side, you go out and you're, you're bidding for these locations. So you can be like, I want to go work for, um, a 15 alpha operational analysis squadron and do support for them. And then you get this flavor of the analysis people. And so it's cool. You can choose all these elements. You can go do it for fighters if you want to be closer to the aircraft. And um, they, they took us out on, like, for both 21Rs and 21 Alphas, so logistics and maintenance. Every time I would come into the unit, after about three months in, they'd be like, hey, let's do an experience tour for you. Oh, what does that mean? And that meant, like, all right, we're getting you on a fuel truck. All right, we're going to go load this C-130 you know, whatever, um, we're going to go do these things and you're going to do it with our airmen and just see what it's like for a day in the life with our folks. Um, so you could get pulled out of that. And I did the same thing with maintenance, like let's go fix this jet. And there's many flavors of maintenance that I didn't know existed until I got there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, section command, super cool in that regard. But then the last thing I'll say on it is that it is a phenomenal opportunity to, uh, exert power, in a way that benefits others. So there were airmen uh, that had like challenging situations, one of which I can think of um, was this, this young couple, they lost their child um, in, a, in a tragic, very sudden way. And usually there's like this month long process that it would take us to get those folks back home and you know out of the UK and into um, a location where they have more support. And uh, thanks to a lot of motivated individuals and some gray areas in the AFIs, um, you know, we made that happen in like a week and a half. Mm -hmm. And so we, we got them to where they needed to be supported by their families. Um, 
and made sure we were able to pay for all the things that need to be paid for um, because we used kind of that gray area. Uh, and there are plenty of cases like that. Like uh, there are more examples than I can remember of um, having the opportunity to take advantage of kind of this gray, well, nebulous decision and then make the decision that's right for the airmen. Uh, and, you know, always having your leadership's buy-in. But if you're doing what takes care of the people, like the system isn't built to always take care of the people. It, it will do what's right for the force and try to help everybody along the way. But there are some situations that the system is not designed to manage and it needs a human being to do that. And so that's what you get to do as a section manager. You get to go manage those situations that are generally quite challenging um, for the member and um, the, the force to try to reconcile. And mm-hmm. then you reconcile it and move forward. So in many ways, like working in the gray is kind of like working as a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, was, I love that element, like puzzling through, making my case, arguing that case up and up the chain until I got the approval I needed for X, Y, or Z action for an individual. Yeah, it sounds like those G-series orders are a way to kind of cut through red tape that one of my classes here in management, uh, mm. we we discuss bureaucracy at length. And I mean, I think it has this negative connotation a lot of times, but mm. it's put in place for a decent reason so that yeah. like people don't corrupt. And it's like, mm. if you think of it, like a crosswalk is a very tiny example of bureaucracy. It's like, you don't want people just crossing the road wherever. So it's like, there yeah. are examples of a good thing. But uh, I think in in the situation that you're talking about, like, this family needs to get home. This is this is urgent. You have that ability to cut through that red tape because, you know, you're using your discretion as an officer, as I think uh, there should be that discretion. So I guess it puts a little bit more hope in me or gives me a little bit more hope that, um, I don't know, maybe the academy just makes me a little bit cynical about <laughs> how decisions are made sometimes. Yeah, yeah so I think AFIT was an interesting thing because – now you're doing a lot more operations research stuff, yes. to my knowledge. Yep, so right. I would love to hear that transition of FSS to OR. Yeah, so um, so the 38Fs get a every, – every career field has an advanced academic degree opportunity. They are tied to specific outcomes, like we want to make you more like this. Uh, 38F does that in a analysis vein. And so they sent me to AFIT. I was lucky enough to get picked up. Um, for the advanced academic degree. So they basically pay for, they, they do entirely pay for your master's, PCS you to a school, and then pay you as a, a full-time officer to go to school full-time. Out of uniform? Out of, well, at AFIT it was in uniform, but if there are CIs, right, civilian institutions, um, that are offered for every AAD, uh, and yeah, if you, if you get picked up for a CI or you apply for a CI and then get picked up, then you are out of uniform, paid just like an officer with no requirements to do anything other than go to school for that year and a half, just as a civilian. And you <laughs> PCS wherever you want, live in that place, and then go to that school. So, yeah, huge benefits. If you, if you want, like, a break, um, look for an advanced academic degree CI institution. Apply to that. Um, you get to choose any of uh, the schools so long as they get approved on the back end, um, and then they'll pay you to just be a civilian. So... That's pretty cool. Um, my experience was at AFIT, Air Force Institute of Technology, where we wore uniforms every day. Uh, so a little different, but uh, but it, it was good. Um, AFIT was freaking hard. Um, 
it was it was tough but uh yeah learned a lot of cool skills basically went through all of the operations research criteria um for uh the initial skills training that 15 alphas used to go through they don't get to do this anymore but they would go give them a master's before they entered the career field so that they were technical experts when they got in and i was the last year that they did that for 15 alphas so because too many of them were like getting the degree and then just punching after four or five years and going to work for industry and making way more money yeah doing doing well financially for sure um but yeah so that effectively earned me the 15 alpha badge as well so now i'm a 38f with a secondary afsc as a 15 alpha um so that's pretty neat um but i also have this skill set that was attractive to Olea uh, that I am constantly trying to refine because I feel under <laughs> uh, underskilled all the time. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I ended up at Olea and doing some of that 15 alpha type stuff. And now this will this has the opportunity to vector me into more of the analysis FSS positions going forward if I choose to do so. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's how that worked out. That's pretty sweet. Well, sir, I really appreciate your time. And I mean, this is the second time, so you give me double the time. Uh, but yeah, so I really appreciate you, you know, coming on and sharing your experience with all the listeners. So yeah. thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to share it. I uh, I hope folks have a more informed decision about 38F and uh, hopefully feel a little bit more motivated to put it on there because um, I think it's an awesome career thing. Oh, yeah. Hey, thanks for listening. Make sure to follow and leave a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the show and see what the team is up to on our Instagram page for.the.zoomies as well as our website forthezoomies.com. Catch you on the next episode.